0: Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more.
1: We enjoy the journey of the wine, you know, try it every so often and to see how it is evolving because that's so, so exciting. Uh, Wine is a living thing. And it is extraordinary that one can have in one's hand a drink that does stretch back over time. Um, And it's quite humbling. So it's more than 2,400 years. And my
2: grandfather thought, okay, if it's there for such a long time, there might be something special. There might be something magic about it. The fact is
3: that the market wants... Something every year, you know, and if you go silent for two or three years, then your brand becomes forgotten very quickly. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects
0: Director for Wine Spectator, and in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our February 28th, 2023 issue, which includes our wine values of the year. This list of great bargains represents an exciting and diverse crop of widely available wines rated 90 points or higher and priced at $40 or less a bottle. You'll find the full top values list in our February issue at, at winespectator.com And later on in this episode, we'll be revealing Wine Spectator's Wine Value of the Year for 2022, so stay tuned. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking about two subjects that are very dear to my heart, port and the Rhone, which are also featured in our February issue. To help us talk port, we have Adrian Bridge and Rupert Symington in the house, and helping us dive into the Rhone Valley, we have the great Philippe Gigal as a guest. We're also going to be joined later by our advice columnist, Dr. Vinny, and by Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank, with a report on the rain and floods in some of California's major wine regions. And as always, to help me kick the episode off is our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Welcome back, Rob.
4: Hey, James. I feel like I should be saying welcome back to you. Mm. It's our first episode of 2023, and I've just been sitting here since we wrapped episode four, but you've been a real road warrior. Let's say it's nice to be back home today, even though... It is
0: pouring rain here in New York.
4: <laughs> First you were in Portugal, then you took a big trip to the Rhone Valley, and yesterday you got back from... I got back from a very soggy
0: Napa Valley this weekend, and I seem to have brought the weather with me. While I was out there, it was just pouring every day. We'll get into that later. But while I was there, there was some good news, too. The Favia Winery, owned by Andy Erickson and Annie Fabia, is moving to New Digs. They are into the prestigious Oakville AVA now with a vineyard purchase that they've done with the Huneus family 80 acres. The spot is right next to Opus 1. You couldn't be in a more high-rent district there. And listeners will probably remember uh, Fabio winemaker Andy Erickson from Episode 1 of our podcast.
4: Just so I have this right, you went to the Rhône, Portugal, Mm -hmm. and Napa. And in this episode, we're talking about... The Rhône, Portugal, and Napa. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're covering Bordeaux next episode, right? I... I don't care where you go between now and then. I'm heading back to Bordeaux at some point this year. It's
0: been a while due to COVID and scheduling, Um, but right now I just need the comforts of home for a bit before the
4: next jaunt. Okay. All joking aside, this is kind of a sentimental episode. You became Wine Spectator's lead taster for France's Rhône Valley in the early 2000s. I was really diving into wine for the first time back then, and... I was such a enough to pop and Cote routine fanboy, and a lot of that is due to your enthusiasm for those regions. Well, I appreciate that. And definitely nothing wrong with fanboying out on those
0: wines. It's, it's been a nice run covering the Rhone for about two decades. It's my personal favorite region, which I can now admit to as I take off my journalist hat. <laughs> and uh, going deep over such a period of time, I got to see so much change there from Appalachians being planted out to their limits to the generational shifts at family domains and much more. For the uninitiated, the Rhone Valley is a relatively large wine region in southern France. You fly into Paris, you grab the TGV Bay at the airport, you take it to Valence, and from there you're, you're well situated for the northern half of the region. Another hour or so drive from there and you're in the southern half, and these are two very different portions of the valley. The north is a tight, winding river valley, steep slopes that line the banks of the Rhone River. Syrah is the only red grape, and then you have Viognier, Marsanne, and Roussanne for the whites. When you get to the south, it's totally different, wide open, gently rolling hills and plateaus, and there are more than a dozen permitted grape varietals. Grenache is the leading red grape, along with Morbed, a bit of Syrah and others, and then you have Appalachians such as Châteauneuf and Gigondas, which get all the glory.
4: And now, after 20 years on the beat, you're passing the torch. And is right, hence the sentimental
0: side to the episode. Can't say it doesn't hurt to move on from the Rhone, but my work cup runneth over now, thanks to the addition of California Pinot Noir and this little podcast thing we're doing. However, it's going to be in great hands with our colleague, Kristen Beeler, stepping in. Kristen, joined me on my recent trip to the Rhone, and now she's joining us right here on Street Talk. Hey, stranger.
5: Hi, James. Hi, Rob. It's great to be here. Not to play favorites amongst the other wonderful regions that I'm lucky enough to cover for Wine Spectator, but I must confess the Rhone is especially near and dear to me. My in-laws live there, in fact.
4: I can't really imagine a better Rhone tour guide than James. Seems like a real once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I totally don't mind being left behind.
0: Mm, Well, maybe next time. But I got to know Kristen a lot better in France uh, as we drove around uh, for two weeks, so let's officially introduce her to the podcast. She joined Wine Spectator as a senior editor in 2021, and as one of our tasters, she's been reviewing the wines of southern France in the Loire Valley, and she's now taking on Alsace, Germany, and Austria, in addition to France's Rhone Valley. As a journalist, she's been covering the wine industry for more than two decades, So, Kristen, why don't you tell us a little bit about what brought you to wine and what brought you to Wine Spectator?
5: Sure. So I grew up in Arizona, and my parents were a little ahead of their time in that wine was always on the dinner table when I was a kid. And then I went to Cornell University, and I took the famous wine course there, which every kid fights to take because you get to drink wine in class. And that really planted the seed of curiosity in wine for me. But I began my career in book publishing at Random House, and after a few years, I made the move to magazines. And I've always focused on food and wine and spirits. When Marvin Schenken approached me a year and a half ago with the opportunity to join Wine Spectator as senior editor, it was not a hard decision.
4: Now tell me about this trip you and James just took. I was following along on social media, and I saw a lot of vineyards and cellars and a couple of really old wines.
5: What a tour indeed. Yeah, so many highlights. What really impressed me, particularly in the southern Rhone, was how producers there are responding to the impact of climate change, this part of the Rhone, especially chateauneuf de pape is really on the front lines. They're battling extreme heat and extended periods of drought. It's something I focus a lot on in my Rhone tasting report. In Chateauneuf, we visited the Perrin family, the owners of Chateau de Beaucastel. They're attempting to build the world's most sustainable winery. It's really incredible. It's a benchmark-setting project that's already inspiring architects and engineers all over the world. They've excavated underground to create this massive cistern, which will be used to collect and store rainwater. The plan is to create huge air shafts designed to harness the power of the Mistral, which is that legendary strong wind that blows incessantly in this part of the world. The airflow from that will blow over the underground water, which in turn will then naturally cool the winery and meet almost all of their air conditioning needs. No electricity needed. Pretty brilliant, right?
0: I mean, it is pretty amazing that tour that we got there. And to top it off, or should I say hold it up? The walls of the entire structure are being constructed by compressing the clay that they had excavated on the site. It's a fascinating project, and they look to complete it in 2024.
5: And in the northern Rhone, we got to spend a day with Jean-Louis Chauve and his wife, Erin. So Chauve's reds and whites really represent the gold standard in Hermitage, and their cellar is like a catacomb. It's filled with these cobweb and dust-covered rare old bottles. And yes, Rob, you're right. Jean-Louis shared a few with us. We tasted the 1978 White Hermitage and a fascinating 1929 Van de Puy. That's a sweet wine made from grapes that are dried on straw mats. It tasted like liquid figs. So
0: delicious. Yeah, it was really cool to stand there in Shad's Clo. Uh, I've been visiting with him for, for two decades. And, and I remember visiting with him the day that he closed the sale on what he has now named Clo Florentan. He didn't even have the key yet to the estate. So we jumped over the wall and we walked around inside. And it's really been a, a Herculean effort from Jean-Louis and Aaron that is now bearing some terrific fruit there.
5: We also spent a day with Philippe Ygal in cote the northernmost part of the Rhone. You really have to stand in the vineyards of cote to appreciate just how incredibly steep these slopes are. The vines are kept in place by retaining walls. The Yigals employ 18 people full-time just to build and repair these walls. It's basically a never-ending job.
0: The Guiguel family is certainly among the Rhone's leaders, and their Côte-Rotis are among the world's most sought-after Syrahs, of course. In advance of our trip there, though, we actually sat down with Philippe here
2: in our New York studio.
5: Welcome, Philippe. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much, Kristen. It's very nice to be here.
5: I thought we'd start by talking about the 2020 vintage. What are some of your impressions of the 2020s, and what can wine drinkers expect?
2: I think it's a very promising vintage. Um, It is true that uh, we've been extremely fortunate in the Rhone Valley to show... uh, let's say, a a sequence of very highly regarded vintages, started with uh, 2015, 16, of course, 17, 18, and 20. It's a vintage that uh, will offer and deliver a lot of pleasure.
5: So stepping back a bit in time, your grandfather really is credited with reestablishing the Côte-Rôti region after World War II.
2: You know, my my grandpa arrived in uh, the small village of Van uh, where we still live today, uh, at the age of 14 years old and um, he he came there to visit his brother. And um, his brother was uh, doing the most popular and the most interesting thing uh, in Hompuy at the time, that is to say, picking apricots. Except that when my grandfather came around... Uh, he's not been very much interested by the apricots because we have extremely impressive vineyards, very steep vineyards in cote And when he saw these steep vineyards, he started to ask questions to people. OK, what are these vines? He's never heard about vines before, of course. And uh, he said, OK, um, is it interesting to grow grapes there? And everybody told him no. There's absolutely no future. The future is in apricots. And, and the vines, you know, it's something that is going to disappear because it's very steep, it's difficult to work there. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's very little production of of Côte-Rôtie. There were very little production at the time. And uh, he had another question. That is, it's something recent? And people said, not exactly. It's dating back the Roman time, so it's more than 2,400 years. And my grandfather thought, okay, if it's there for such a long time, there might be something special. There might be something magic about it.
0: The Gigal family has such a rich history in their own valley, and they make three of the most prestigious wines in the region, a trio of single vineyard cote rotis affectionately known as the Lalas. The Lalas are among the highest-rated wines I've ever reviewed, and these days they cost around $500 a bottle. But there wasn't always three. La Moline, which features the oldest vines, debuted in 1966. The La Landon bottling followed in 1978, and La Turc debuted in 1985. And now there's a new La. What can you tell us, Kristen?
5: This one's called La Reynard, and it's from a vineyard that Philippe began planting in 2015, entirely to Syrah. Philippe told us about how this fourth La La represents the Gigol family's fourth generation, his twin sons, Charles and Etienne.
2: You know, the, the story behind this, um, this fourth uh, single vineyard is is very simple. Um, we're only three generation. I represent the third generation at Gigal. And um, it is true that uh, La Mouline is a vineyard that my grandfather always dreamt of. So uh, when he arrived at 14 years old, he asked, um, What is the best vineyard in Coutreti? And people told him, It's this vineyard. It was La Moulin. So it was his dream to buy his vineyard. We achieved it in uh, 1966. Uh, my dad did a lot. For our estate, um, he planted a vineyard the week of my birth. I was born in January 1975, and uh, it's the time he's chosen to plant La London. And, of course, um, he, he imagined the renaissance of, of La Turque. Um The fourth generation is around. So um, my wife, Eve, and I are very, are very uh, fortunate to have twin boys. We have uh, two fantastic boys, and I followed my... Uh, well, let's say the example of my dad. So I thought it was a good idea to plant a vineyard uh, for for their birth. We got the very first vinifications of this block in 2019, which was extremely promising, confirmed in 2020. Uh, 2021, we had a severe frost in cote So So um, we saw what it could give also in a difficult, in a more difficult vintage. And 2022, that is the first vintage where we have uh, the full expression of, uh, of this vineyard. And um, what can I say? People cannot see me, but I'm smiling right now. So, uh, <laughs> yes, we're very happy about, uh, about the results. It's very promising.
5: We were lucky enough to taste the 2020 in barrel with Philippe in his cellar. It's a very impressive wine, a lot of power and concentration. Stylistically, Philippe says it's somewhere between La Turque and La Landon.
0: That makes sense. The new La Renard vineyard is just a stone's throw from La Turc and La Landon. It's on the cote Brune side of the Appalachian. Those are darker soils. They're from schist. It's iron oxide. So it gives that very distinct kind of cast iron character to the wine. Lots of tannin. We were lucky enough to taste that La Renard sample side by side with the other threes, and it does fit in between the La and the La Landon. Very different from La Mouline, which is the Cote Blonde side of the Appalachian. That's granite soil, so the tannins are a little finer. There's a little more fruit expression there. Definitely a wine of commensurate quality, the La Renard with the other three. Definitely distinct and on its own, and I expect it will quickly earn its place alongside the other three. Thanks for joining us today, Kristen. We're all looking forward to reading your Rhone tasting report in the February 28th, 2023 issue of Wine Spectator. And I promise I won't be looking over your shoulder as you review wines from the Rhone.
5: Well, I'm not sure if I believe that, James. (laughs) but, But seriously, you can sit down on my Rhone tastings anytime. And I'm surely bugging you for insights, because not many people know their own as well as you do.
0: And we're also going to have you back here this summer when it's time to talk Rosé and Provence, another one of my old stomping grounds.
5: Yes, so excited for spring weather and Rosé season. Maybe I'll even bring a big-name celebrity Rosé producer with me next time.
4: Hey, no spoilers. Get out of here. Ooh,
2: foreshadowing.
5: <laughs> Bye, James. Bye, Rob. See you next time.
0: Coming up, we'll have two titans of port. Adrian Bridge, CEO of the Fladgate Partnership, and Rupert Symington, CEO of Symington Family Estates. But first, to get our listeners up to speed on port, perhaps we should page the good
4: doctor. What say ye, Rob? Is there a doctor in the house? Paging Dr. Vinny.
5: Paging Dr. Vinny. Code rouge in the podcast studio.
6: Good afternoon, Rob. What seems to be your latest, uh, whine?
4: (laughs) Ha ha. Hi, Dr. Vinny. We've got a big port interview coming up, and I need a vocab checkup.
6: Well, let me take your temperature on port first. What do you know?
4: I know it's from Portugal. I know it's fortified, which means it has spirits added. But I kind of forget what that's about. You know, other than that, it fortifies it. Uh, probably not with ghosts.
6: Right. Unfortunately, you, you hear spirits and you're thinking of ghosts. Well, let me let me let me straighten you out there. So, yeah, you're right. Port is a fortified wine from Portugal. It comes from the Douro Valley, which is actually the oldest demarcated wine region in the world, dating back to 1756. Port starts out like any other wine, with grapes that are usually red, but there can also be some white wine grapes involved. They're harvested and crushed, and then the fermentation process begins.
4: But then...
6: But then, before the fermentation is finished, remember that's when the sugar in the grapes is being converted to alcohol... The winemaker adds a distilled spirit. It's typically a neutral brandy to the fermenting wine. That brandy is about 150 proof, so it kills the yeast and stops the conversion of sugar to alcohol. So this gives port its two signature features. One, its alcohol level usually checks in at about 20% thanks to that dose of brandy. And then two, there's also that touch of sweetness thanks to the unfermented or residual sugar.
4: So there are ruby ports and tawny ports what's the difference?
6: Yeah, so ruby port is a category that covers all ports that are primarily aged in bottle and not barrels or casks. From top end vintage ports down to the cooking ports, you might see lining the bottom shelf at a wine shop. Ruby ports are aged for no more than three years, usually in neutral oak or stainless steel, which preserves that fruit forward appeal. Rubies are often blends of many different lots to create a consistent house style. Once they're released, the top-end rubies like vintage port require more time in bottle to reach their peak. On the flip side, tawny ports are aged in casks for a significantly longer time before bottling, sometimes even decades. Because of that, they're ready to drink when they're released. And because of that extended aging in casks, they're paler and, well, I guess tawnier than ruby ports. They'll have a mellow, nutty, slightly woody, dried fruit character, which comes from their long maturation in those porous wooden casks.
4: And then what's the difference between a vintage port and a single quinta bottling? Because those are vintage dated too, right?
6: Yeah, so vintage port is at the peak of the port pyramid as far as price, aging potential, and prestige. It's only made in years that port houses declare vintage-worthy, which usually happens just a few times a decade. So if you're born in a vintage port year, you're extra lucky.
4: I'm not extra lucky.
6: Oh. Also, most vintage ports blend grapes from various vineyards, and that's another distinction between the vintage ports and single quintas. Quinta means estate in Portuguese. So a single quinta bottling is a port made from a single estate. It's basically a single vineyard wine. A port house may opt to bottle a vintage dated single Quinta port. That's usually, but not always, done in years that don't meet the consensus for an across-the-board declared vintage. These wines can rival general vintage ports for quality, but production is typically much smaller because there's only so much wine you can make from a single estate.
4: Thanks, Dr. Vinny. I think I'm prepared to port.
6: And remember, always pass the bottle or decanter to the left. That's the port tradition. And you can find my full archives of free Dr. Vinny columns online. And if any of our curious listeners have a question of their own, you can email me at straighttalk@winespectator.com. at winespectator.com. Cheers.
0: Later on in this episode, I'll be revealing Wine Spectator's Value Wine of the Year. But first, it's time to welcome our powerhouse port panel. Adrian Bridge is the CEO of the Flaggate Partnership, representing Taylor's, Fonseca, Croft, and others. And Rupert Simmington is CEO of Symington Family Estates, which includes Graham's, Dow's, Wires, and more. Together, the two of you represent a substantial percent of the quality port coming out of the Duro today. Rupert, let me start with you. Some houses have made a vintage port declaration for 2020, but there's not a consensus on the vintage.
3: What goes into that decision? Well, back in the uh, late 19th century, the port trade came up with this sort of honor system where they were going to declare the years that were really good, to so ask people to hold their money back in the less good years. And throughout the 20th century, we had about, on average, about three declarations per decade. Um, obviously, as time has gone on, people, you know, are making better wine in the off years. A declaration is very much a personal statement by the shipper. It's not a, a, a general um, matter. So there could be years that Adrian declares and we don't and vice versa. But on the whole, the the, the, the best years are very, um, you know, noticeable and that lots of people come out and support them.
0: And Adrian, the 2020 vintage in particular, what's the style and quality like? And did you declare Fonseca and Taylor or are you doing uh, single Kinta bottlings?
1: If you look at the 2020 harvest, I mean, it was a, it's a challenging year. I mean, I think it's probably true to say that as a result of climate change, you know, the last five, six years in the Douro have been Uh, have thrown different challenges to the winemaking team. And certainly with the 2020s, you know, the the wines were big. There were a lot of structure in them, a lot of tannins. But obviously to get something of, you know, true exceptional level that we normally get with Vintage Port, you know, you're looking for that real harmony, that real balance between all aspects of it. So, you know, we feel with the 2020, it's it's a lovely wine. Uh, We think it's going to be a little bit more early maturing.
0: What I've always found fascinating about Vintage Port in particular is the sort of way that the industry polices itself.
1: But there's been a trend
0: for the houses to release something every year now that I've seen, sort of since 2013, 2014, either single
3: kinta or a general declaration. The fact is that the market wants something every year, you know. And if you go silent for two or three years, then your brand becomes forgotten very quickly. You know, we're we're all living in you know the days of sort of you know everything is 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 you know available at your fingertips. That said, there's definitely. Uh, if you don 't declare every year, you are building up tension you 're building up demand you're you 're building up excitement around the release I think
1: one of the beauties of of port is that we look back to for example the boom and if we want to put a boom starting report, port there 's when you know the wine spectator put the Taylor and Fonseca. Ninety um, fours on the front cover as the wines of the year, two hundred point wines, perfect scores. Here we are, um, and that there you know, was a huge amount of interest around it at that stage. We've now moved on a generation. You know, we're thirty years later now, but I think the delight that people have towards port and the understanding that there's different ports for different occasions you know, is creating excitement at, at all generations. And I look to people who put wine aside for for a birthday and then they wonder when they should open it. And my encouragement always is, well, enjoy the journey of the wine. You know, Try it every so often and just see how it is evolving because that's so, so exciting. Uh, wine is a living thing.
0: One of my favorite lines uttered at, at a wine experience was by uh, Jean-Michel Caz who said, you know, wine is a time machine. Seems kind of simple, but he was very elegant when he, when he said it. And, and port with its need to age, vintage port in particular, is kind of like the ultimate – time machine and then having those vintages that are spread out because you don't make a fully declared vintage every year sort of makes those years special like if you're born in a year like 1970 like some of us in this room uh you're very lucky and if you're born in 72 (laughs) you're searching for something else
1: yeah absolutely right and i think that um you are lucky to be born in 1970 Uh, and actually i was having some 70 on the last weekend from a magnum and i have to say it was an incredible, vibrant, and, and powerful young wine, and you're thinking, "Gosh, you know, this is 52 years old, and yet, nonetheless, is is showing." You know, such such uh, delicious fruit and such freshness and all the rest of it. And you're right, it is a time capsule, and it's, it's sometimes when you go back, and particularly, we, you know, we touched on age tawnies, and you know there's been these uh, habit of releases of age tawnies in the last decade that stretch back into the 19th century. And, you know, I can remember when we put together the book for the uh, R1863. And you go back and these... Um, moments in history of, of completely different generations it was prior to phylloxera in the doro when when the doro itself was just a completely different place and it is extraordinary that one can have in one's hand a drink that does stretch back over time um, and it's quite humbling
4: you know james i'd i'd like to thank you and adrian for once again reminding me I was born a year off from the Epic 77 vintage. It's a tough break, but, you know, it's a
0: lucky club for those of us that are born in exceptional port vintages.
4: (laughs) You are truly exceptional. (laughs) Speaking of tough breaks, I missed out on that Portugal trip, too. But that's a pretty friendly destination for U.S. wine lovers. Spill the beans. Very
0: friendly destination. Portugal is a terrific place to visit. It's easy to get to, especially from the East Coast in the U.S., the town of Porto and its neighboring town, Nova de Gallo, are beautiful with original old-world charm. The food, with an emphasis on seafood, is dynamite. It's relatively inexpensive, and English is spoken widely there. And that's all before you go upriver into the Douro Valley itself, which is one of the most striking wine regions in the world.
4: And, of course, you just got back from Napa, another place you didn't invite me, mm-hmm. where a Pineapple Express is deluging drought-stricken California.
0: Yeah, now, you are, of course, referring to Pineapple Express, the weather phenomenon by which an atmospheric river dumps moisture from the tropical Pacific onto California, and not the fantastic Seth Rogen film, Pineapple Express. (laughs) Sure, the first one. (laughs) I mean, it rained almost every day. I was there, I think I counted 12 out of 14 days of pouring rain during my last trip, and anyone who's been watching the news knows there's been a lot of flooding all across the state Napa, which only averages about 27 inches of rain a year, has already gotten well more than half of that since Christmas. Here to tell us how that's impacting the rest of the California wine industry is Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank. Welcome back, Mitch.
7: Hey, guys. Why is it you only call me when there's bad news? Hey, when it's raining, we think of you down in New Orleans. (laughs) Well, I do tend to live in a swamp, so that's fair. So what's the latest damage report? Well, after years of drought, California has had a very wet 2023 so far. There have been nine waves of rain over three weeks that began on New Year's Eve. That led to flash flooding, mudslides, power outages, and more. And at least 20 people have been killed, including a five-year-old boy who was pulled out of his mother's arms as they tried to escape their flooding car near Paso Robles.
0: Mm, Yeah, there's been a lot of of human loss uh, and tragedy uh, through this. Uh, As I said, Napa is in pretty good shape, but other areas really took it on the chin.
7: Yeah, it's been particularly bad down around Monterey and Santa Cruz and further down by Santa Barbara. That's where most of the heavy stuff has been. Uh, The central coast regions have been affected the most. So why all this rain now? It comes down to the jet stream. Uh, The jet stream was blasting straight across the Pacific towards California, and it picked up moisture from all the warm ocean waters to create atmospheric rivers. It's basically like a sea of water vapor going through the sky at about the same altitude planes fly. Now, last year, the jet stream went around California during the winter, dumping all that moisture in the Rockies. This year, it's hitting the Golden State straight on.
0: Yeah, you know, during my trip while I was out there, some folks were asking me, uh, what's it like when you see a, a flooded vineyard like that? And as you note, it's it's the dormant period, and so the vines, there's no grapes on them. There's no harm from from that, and they just store all that water. But now as we start to look forward into February, March, April, May, when they will be growing and there will be vegetative growth and eventually grapes, is the coast
7: clear? This tends to be the wettest season for California. So by the time we have the grapevines budding and flowers starting to bloom, which is when they're more vulnerable to rain, uh, we should be back to sunnier weather. Thanks, Mitch. Hopefully it's clear sailing heading into the spring. Thanks for having me, guys.
4: See you soon. And on that note, James, I think it's time that you finally unveil our value of the year. Absolutely. Our annual top 10 wine
0: values of the year highlights widely available wines scoring 90 points or higher and costing $40 or less. Our number one wine value comes from one of California's old guard icons and one that is back at the top of its game. Wine Spectator's Wine Value of the Year is. The Beaulieu Vineyards 2019 Napa Cabernet Sauvignon. It rated 92 points and cost just $33, a pretty astonishing value in a category where triple digit prices are the norm. At BV, winemaker Trevor Durling was brought on board in 2017, and he's quickly making his mark on the wines here. They have a, they still have that broad-shouldered, loamy, Rutherford feel, but there's more purity and freshness in them now. And if you haven't checked out BV's cabs lately, you might want to reconsider that.
4: Hey, why isn't our podcast the value of the year? Uh, excellent point, Rob. This free
0: podcast is a heck of a value, but you can't drink a podcast, and we're talking about the top wine values of
4: the year. For more of these top wine values... Find the full top 10 list at winespectator.com. While you're there, you can check out the values section of our wine ratings database for hundreds more outstanding wines priced at $25 or less. And that brings us to the end of another fabulous episode. As a reminder for our listeners, the February 28 issue of Wine Spectator includes not just the top 10 wine values of the year, but also our Roan and Port tasting reports, highlights from the New York wine experience, and much more. If you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. James, care to let everyone know what we're lining up for next time? And you'd better say Bordeaux.
0: Bordeaux, yes. Next episode, <laughs> we will be covering the March 31, 2023 issue of Wine Spectator, which includes my annual tasting report on Bordeaux. We'll also be chatting with Mitch Frank again, this time about the future of wine. And that's all I can say for now, because it's in the future.
4: <laughs> Surely you've got a Straight Talk exclusive wine pick for us before you sign off?
0: My sneak peek of the week, of course. It's the Dellinger 2020 Pinot Noir Altamont Cuvée from Sonoma's Russian River Valley. Dellinger is one of the Russian River Valley's Pinot pioneers, having started in the early 1970s. Second-generation owner Ava Dellinger now handles the winemaking, and this bottling, named for the soil type on which the vines are planted, Altamont, is a rare standout in the tricky 2020 vintage. If you remember, that's the wildfire-ravaged deer really cut the, the harvest short. I'm looking forward to tasting through the rest of the 2020 California Pinot Noirs in the coming months when I'm out in Napa. We'll just have to see what we find. But from the podcast studio, that's it for now. Until next time, thanks for joining us here on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.